This series is based out of, ooh, that's a, a lyric from the uh, songs. Um, so let the praise be a weapon that silences the enemy. You're supposed to echo back to me. It's a, oh, and it's gone, so you don't have to. All right, so they're getting my, uh, my slides up. So we, there was a, a study that was put out by Arizona Christian University uh, several uh, months ago, and the, the head of this study, his name is George Barna, and George Barna for probably about 20 years has done research uh, uh, and on working with putting together statistics and probabilities within the church and the impact that the world is having on the church, the impact that the church is having on the world, and then really forecasting what we can see as the trends moving forward within the church world. And uh, let's see, we'll go right here. And uh, inside of that study, one of the things that really uh, leapt out uh, to me was that uh, they said that ages 20 to 39, that 60% claim to be Christians, which I, I thought, man, that's awesome. Like 60%, that's a lot higher than I, I think I would have expected. And, and part of why that is isn't because of just interaction with 20 to 39-year-olds. It is just because I was a youth pastor before this. And so like watching the trends of how uh, young people have moved in their faith, uh, I didn't expect it to be that high. And, and somebody... Uh, you, you know, might listen to this and go, oh, ages 20 to 39, like he's just like really singling out people. I just want you to know I'm, I'm only 41. So I'm right on the, on the bridge of this, right? Just like my, my oldest son is 18. He's on one side of this. I'm on the other side of it. So this is not me looking at a group of people going, oh, I'm so much better than them. This is me going, this is, this is where we're at. Like this is a part of, 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 of people lives that I care about, and I'm a part of this demographic, but less than 2% believe in the following. So 60% claim to be Christian, but less than 2%. I just want you to think about that number. Less than 2% believe these things, that Jesus lived a sinless life, God is all-powerful and knowing, salvation is a gift from God, the deceiver is real, a Christian must share their faith, uh, and the Bible is reliable. And so in no particular order, we're kind of going through these right now and establishing uh, why we believe that these six principles are actually foundational to the faith. Uh, and so today, I want to talk to you about Jesus living a sinless life, right? So uh, one of these ideas being that Jesus lived a life without sin. This is just one of those things that I just took, yeah, that's what it is. I, I was told that, and I believe that Jesus is king, and I've had personal experiences with God. I have seen God show up in my life, and I'm going to freak some of you out, but I have directly heard God speak in my life at times, right? When my son was in the hospital and doctors were telling me he was going to die, I had a vision and God spoke to me and told me that he was going to meet every single need. And if that weren't enough, in that very moment, the phone rang and it was somebody contacting me saying that we've got a place for you to stay because I thought we were going to be homeless, right? So God showed up and every penny of every bill was paid during that time. God did exactly what he said he would do. So, so with God showing up in my life, there are just certain parts of the faith that growing up in church I took for granted. And so I knew I needed to tackle this and, and I had to jump into this idea, did Jesus sin? 
and I decided that the first thing we need to do is we need to define sin, right? Because I was trying to think, like, I can come at this and say, well, there's a bunch of scripture that says that Jesus didn't sin. And, you know, we already know that one of the things that people wrestle with is the accuracy or reliability of Scripture, which we addressed in the first week. How can we go beyond just simply saying, well, the Bible believes that Jesus didn't sin, the apostles believe that Jesus didn't sin, and that kind of led me down this path of having to look into defining sin. So what did I do? I did what most of us would do, and I went to Google and I said, definition, sin. So Google gives us a definition that says an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law, okay? I thought this is a pretty good definition. Like I could kind of get on board with this. So then it led me down this question of, okay, well, if this is what sin is and I'm saved, right? And we talk about grace and we talk about mercy and God's goodness, then, then does sin impact me? Does sin really does it really hurt me in the end? Like, why does it matter if I sin or don't sin? And, and, and I, I kind of led me down this idea that, you know, some would use grace to say, well, no, sin isn't really that big of a thing. Like, God saved you, and so, you know, if you sin, it's okay. Try to be a good person, right? I mean, have, you ever, have, you, have you ever heard that? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever listened to a message and kind of gotten that idea out of it? It's like, like, sin is bad. Like, we're not trying to parade sin, like have the sin parade and go, yay, look at sin, you can do whatever you want. Like That's not the thing that we're saying, but it's like, you know, I mean, nobody's perfect and just try to do good most of the time. And if you'll do good, right, then by God's grace, you'll be perfectly fine. And and that is really an, an idea that a lot of people have. And to be honest, like even though I would never word it like that, I think there has been seasons or a, a season of my life where I think I kind of felt that way that I felt like, well, is God really looking at every action that's in my life? Uh, and, and so I really came to the conclusion as I was studying this that the question of does sin impact me was probably the wrong question. Now, I'm not going to give you the right question. We'll come to it at the end, right? Because I didn't come to the epiphany that this is not the right question until I had done this study. So if we go back to the first century church, that they were struggling with this works and grace, right? And, and, and what role each played in salvation, right? And uh, if you'll just kind of get your, your mind around this, before Jesus showed up, there was the law. So when you're looking at the Old Testament, they're given the law. The expectation is, here's how you will live your life. You'll do X, Y, and Z. And by doing that, then you'll be a good person and you'll be saved. And the whole time, they're not capable of doing it, right? Now, they have the promise of a coming Messiah. They have a promise of one that will be the perfect sacrifice, the means by which salvation will come. Paul addresses this, right? He says uh, in his writings that if, if we were to go back and talk with people like Noah and Abraham, they would be Christians because they were always looking for the promise. They were always looking forward to the promise. So they would be followers of Christ. So, so it's not that they weren't Christians, but the way that we look at Christianity and define Christianity would not be the same way that they, that they would path this out. But you have an entire group of people who live their lives based on the law. And so if I do good, I am saved and all will be okay. And so do my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. This, this as, a, as a framework for faith is found inside of other religions. And, and God knew that this was the framework by which man 
would create faith. And so he did an ingenious work and spent time undoing that, right? And so over the course of thousands of years, he laid out a case for why your doing good isn't going to be the thing that resolves your hope for eternity, that it was always going to be Jesus. So what role does sin play in this? So we're going to look here in Romans primarily today at some writings because Paul spends a lot of time writing to the church in Rome about sin. So it's the perfect place for us to go. And to be honest, it can be completely uncomfortable, especially in our current culture and society, um, the type of reading that, that a lot of us want to try to avoid. But let's go to Romans chapter 7. Look here in verses 7 and 8. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, right? So he says, so he says that the law is not sin. The law doesn't save me, but that doesn't make it bad. He says, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't have been able to identify, I would not have known what sin is, right? Okay, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So he says, I have revelation and understanding that this thing is sin. Why? Because the word, right, told me that it was sin. Now watch verse 8. This was, this was the kicker for me. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. He says this. He says that sin produced sin. Sin produced covetousness. Now, I can look at coveting and go, well, coveting is sin, but if sin causes covetousness, then what is the sin, right? What is the sin root? What is the sin that is creating the sin that Paul is talking about? So, we're in the middle of Romans. We're in the middle of this letter to a church that is in the that, that is the center of civilization, right? This is where all of the new ideas, all of the political, economic, cultural ideas, the performing arts, all of this is happening and birthing right out of Rome. And there is a church that has developed there of believers, and they are in what is, in essence, sin city. And it's not that sin doesn't exist anywhere else. It's just that within Rome, they're creative with their sin. And so Paul knows that this is going to be something that if you're going to be a Christian living in an area like Rome, then you're going to have to navigate culture and politics. You're going to have to navigate other religions. And so he wants to talk about sin with them. And so in order to make the statement that he makes there in Romans 7, and we'll talk about really kind of an expanded view of what he talks about in those chapters around that, he had to first lay out a picture of sin. And I have taught through Romans before. Some of you have sat there while we've talked taught through it, and I missed this. And this is really good stuff, right? So the question that I want to ask right now is, what is that sin root, right? That if covetousness, and, and we'll get a list of other sins, if they're the fruit and they themselves are sin, then what is it, what is the sin that produces all of those things? That's what Paul's saying. He says that it was produced by sin. And Paul lays out exactly what that is beginning in Romans chapter 1. 
here in verse 18. And I don't have time to go through all of chapters 1, 2, and 3. We did that verse by verse, and you can find those on our YouTube page uh, under the playlist for Romans, and you can go and you can take the time and do that. I'm going to give a very broad stroke here to help connect some dots and paint a picture for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul says here that there is a suppression that takes place. So what is the suppression of truth? The suppression of truth is this picture of, and and I used this illustration when I talked through this uh, uh, several years ago, it's like having a beach ball and being in a swimming pool and thinking about the beach ball as being truth, right? So in order to take that and put it to the bottom of the pool, you're going to have to take a tremendous amount of force and you're going to have to push that thing down. But if you stop pushing, if you come to a place where you are not actively creating resistance, it will always come back to the surface. And that's the picture of suppression, is that in order to suppress the truth, it is a constant, continuous effort that is made to take what is true and and, and just hammer away at it. You have to constantly come at it and say that this is not true. This is not true because because you cannot take it and make it false and have it die because it will always come back to the top. It will always resurface. And that's the picture of suppression that he's talking about. He says here in verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come. Oh, no, no, no. This is in John chapter 3. So I I wanted to give a picture of this. So in, in John chapter 3, verse 16, we all know this verse, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life, right? They say it's probably the most memorized verse in the world, right? But just a couple of verses later, look at what what he says here in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So, God loved the world. That makes us feel really, really great, right? But Jesus goes on and he says this. He says that this is the judgment, right? The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness. So there's a love issue, right? Right? Like humanity has a love issue. The thing that they are passionate about, the thing that they love, right? And it is not light, but it is darkness. Now here is the good news for you today you can just go ahead and know that I, as the pastor of this church, am not exempt from this. Like, If, if we're just going to get completely honest, all of us can identify with this at some point in our lives, in our walk with Christ, that there was a greater desire to do what we want to do and live how we want to live than there was to pursue God. And if I, if I take too much time and don't engage with God, if I'm not in the Word, if I'm not into worship, can I tell you what? That old desire, Paul calls it the old man, it just comes right back to the surface. And it wants to do the exact same thing, and that is what? Love the darkness. And it is how we see people who are men and women of God fall back into sin. And, and, and I, I'll just tell you, Carmen and I were talking about this yesterday, that it is honestly through being in the word and having purpose in your life that you are able to keep that darkness suppressed. And the truth of Christ inside of you coming back to the surface. And it says here 
that they loved the darkness. It doesn't say that they endured it, that they engaged with it, that they liked it, that it was okay. They loved it. And I think that's a really strong word, but I think it helps to paint a picture of the tendency of humanity because of the broken nature that we have as a result of sin entering into the picture. So go back to Romans chapter 1 here and look at what it says. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So Paul says this isn't a mystery in their hearts. They may say that it is. And this is, this is just to give you an idea, too, of how Paul writes. Uh, Paul absolutely writes about what he believes is happening in the hearts of people. Right? The Holy Spirit is not going like, hey, these are some things that may or may not be relevant. The Holy Spirit is leading Paul to write about what is actually going on in the hearts of the men and women who are going to be reading this, including us. And he says that it is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So when you ask the question, well, what about people who don't hear about Jesus, right? Can I tell you? that God reveals himself and he makes it plain. It might not be plain the way that you would interpret it, the way that you would describe it, but God is revealing himself to humanity in ways that we can't comprehend. When we step into eternity, we will meet brothers and sisters that'll be standing there that will say, but you never had a Bible. You, we never told you about Jesus. And they will say, God revealed the truth to my heart and I found it and I knew him. Because don't believe for one second that you can have a relationship with God and that somehow you're better than somebody else that God can't reveal himself and have a relationship with them. And so God has made his, himself known to them. And so the truth that is suppressed is a knowledge revealed by God. This is culminating two verses here. God has given a knowledge, and what have they suppressed? That knowledge. That knowledge is truth. And so where is it suppressed? Well, it gets suppressed in religion. It gets suppressed in culture. It gets suppressed in politics, right? I mean, to be completely honest, like I have people all the time who tell me, like, I just don't think that, you know, the, the church should have any conversations around politics or culture, right? I mean, inevitably, I'll mention a, a, a story in pop culture. One time I mentioned Beyonce, and I got two emails from people saying, you should not be talking about people in culture, right? I, I, I don't understand that, right? It's not like I'm sitting here saying I don't want them to go to heaven. It's not like I don't want them to have an encounter with God, but I fully understand that my responsibility is to the people who I'm speaking to. And if you're engaging in religion and culture and politics, then we should be a part of that conversation because the truth of God is true in every one of those. And it's not just suppressing it at bedtime with our kids. It's not like, well, hey, it's too late. We're not talking about God. So we're going to suppress the truth right here, right now. Kids, you be quiet, right? I mean, you've got to get a picture of suppressing the truth. Is, 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 Paul says they're doing this in their lives. Well, that's what makes up our lives, right? Those are the things. Those are the, those are the three primary areas that make up our lives. And he goes on here in verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What did he say there in John chapter 3? He says that there was light, but they loved the dark, right? So their hearts becoming darkened, this is something that, that they were passionate about. So we suppress the truth by not honoring him as God. That's the first thing that begins, is that it's a suppression. It's a, I'm not going to talk about this here right now. That's the beginning of this process that Paul's laying out. It's, I'm not going to engage in this conversation. I'm not going to be a part of it topically, and we need to be quiet about this. And watch what happens as he continues here. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, right? So by which means do they suppress the truth? Through wisdom. This is the right thing. This is the wisest thing. We don't want to offend. We don't want to hurt. We, we need to suppress this. But he says that they became fools. Verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so there was a transference that took place. And instead of God being the, the image by which they lived their lives, other things became the image that they would bear. And it's worth noting here that, that I will tell you that when what, we're, what Paul is talking about is, is more than idolatry in the sense, because this is a really, this is an unfair term for us. And I, I'm constantly talking about defining the terms, right? If, when I use the word idol, we immediately say, well, we've moved, our, our minds say we've moved beyond that. Like we, we, we don't have idols because I don't in my house have, you know, a statue of Shiva or Zeus or whatever, you know, some people might, but most of us would say, oh, I don't have that in my house. And Paul, what he does is instead of naming these, these gods, right? Because there are times where with the idols, they're naming the different gods that there are idols of. We'll see that even here in the New Testament. It's not just the Old Testament. He says images and he gives generic, a generic observance of that, right? And it says that these were the things that, that begin to take their attention, to consume their time. And the, and the, and the picture that it gives for me is uh, of, of us with our phones in our hands and, and constantly looking at another image created by man, of us looking on a television, constantly consumed by the images created by man. Now, what I'm not saying here is, is like, oh, well, you need to get rid of your phone or, you know, that your TV is bad. What I'm saying is, is that, you have to be aware. You have to be aware, and you cannot suppress it. You can't just write it off and go, no, it doesn't matter, right? Because if we don't honor God in those moments where images are in front of us, right, then we are suppressing the truth. So the things that we consume should honor God. This is the picture that he's painting here, right? So uh, he says here, an exchange takes place. And I want to focus on this word because this, this was the word that in this study began to just shape a lot for me. An exchange takes place. In this position, he said it was God for other images, right? And what happens as a result of this exchange? He goes on in verse 24. He says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, and so he uses this word again, the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
So this exchange is the sin before the sin. Paul begins, he's going to talk about sin in depth to the church at Rome, and he begins by saying, hey, here's what we need to address, that, there, that when, when the truth has been presented, that there are those that will suppress the truth. It is the nature of humanity, and what that looks like is exchanging the truth for something else. You're called to honor God, and I'm going to exchange that because I love the darkness, and darkness fills my heart. So the initial thing, right, the thing that bears a root inside of me, that first sin, is the sin of exchanging God for something else. And so what does worship of the creation look like when it, when it gives this, this picture? Right? He says that they've exchanged it. And, and, and I would say that this is something that we could really see culturally happening at an accelerated rate around us right now. Now, inevitably, when I talk about the idea of, uh, uh, when I talk about the idea that there are those who would say, oh, you know, Mother Earth, and, and we're hurting the Earth, and, and we begin to project this type of, of, of sentience to the Earth beyond, you know, Paul talks about the earth groaning, right? But that's because of the sin of humanity. But when we begin to take the earth and say, oh, the earth is hurting because of what we're doing and we should, we should lift her up. This is that picture of looking at creation and lifting it and exalting it higher than it should be. This does not mean that we go home and we create a toxic waste field in our backyard, right? This is, this is not destroy the earth because it's not mother earth right? This is acknowledging that it's God's creation, so it is perfectly fair to respect the earth that God created, but it is not the creator. We did not birth from this planet. God made us. Now, go on here in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. For what reason? The exchange. There was an exchange that took place, Instead of declaring God as being the immortal, glorious God and honoring him, there was a switch that took place, and, they, and it darkened their heart. And so what did God say? All of these other sins become the fruit of it. So he gives them over, and we continue to see more and more sin birthed out of that initial sin. Verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty uh, for their error. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so uh, Paul points the sins of the world to the exchange that people make. He begins to say, you're seeing all of these sins and they are the fruit of an exchange that has taken place. Now, I want to, to, to look at this. Uh, it says right here that they did not see fit, okay? And so I was looking at this in the Greek and the, the word in the Greek here, uh, ook, I think is how you pronounce it, is the word not, okay? That's not my my focus. My focus is on see fit. And this word for to see fit translates out to, a, it's to approve. It's a test. And, and so in the Greek, what, what he's saying is he says that, that they've examined it and they do not approve of the knowledge of God. 
They did not see. They, did, they, they tested the knowledge of God and said it's not good enough for us. So this is a really strong message. It's not like we can just read over it thinking, well, you know, it's not fit. It's not quite good enough. No, it's a lot stronger than that. There was an approval that was not met. And because it was not met, they wanted nothing to do with it. And so they did not approve of God's what? Immortal glory or that he deserved honor. These are the two attributes that Paul has focused on. God's immortal glory and the fact that God deserves honor. And so the exchange is, we will not give God his immortal glory and we will not honor God. We're going to suppress it. And in whatever area and time frame and moment that's going to look like, that's when we're going to do it. And God says, because that happens, because God is not made glorious in their lives at all times, because they suppress it in whatever form, fashion, or time frame, they are given over to other sins. And so Paul says, right, I would not have this covetousness if it were not for sin. Sin created covetousness inside of me. This word he says here, so they did not see fit, but God gave them up to a debased mind. This is where we get the, the, the picture of depravity from, right? And so to be depraved, to be counterfeit or unapproved. Again, this is a really strong little, little statement here by Paul that they tested it, they didn't think it was good enough, and so what did God do? God gave them over to a mind that was not approved. He said, you think you don't approve of my immortal glory and my honor? So the response to that is, then you will have a mind that is not approved. And if you have a mind that is counterfeit, if it's not what God created it to be, then what fruit will it produce? So the mind becomes the defensive position for a sin nature. The mind, because it's a counterfeit, becomes the, the base of operations from which somebody begins to declare, this isn't sin, and this isn't sin, and this is okay. Why? Because it's birthing inside of me. And this is the problem with the statement. Well, I don't believe God would do it that way because I wouldn't. And at its very essence, then, you should be saying, something's not right. Something's not connecting here. Because the, the manner in which I would do it would lead to darkness. That's my nature. I'm aware of that. It's what makes culture and politics and religion so dangerous. Because you have this expectation that the, that the entertainers that are entertaining you are going to be wholesome and have your best interests at heart. Right? When, I, when Carmen and I uh, were first married, we, would, we uh, taught in the public schools an abstinence curriculum, right? So we'd go in and teach kids that the, the safest sex is to wait till you're married, okay? And if you can imagine doing that in middle school, uh, uh, you know, it was very interesting at times. But we would always kind of make this joke because so, much, so many of the songs that the kids listened to were about sex, right? Uh, one of the songs was, uh, you and me, we're nothing but uh, mammals. Let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. So the kids would be singing that or, or, or some other, you know, song about uh, sexual impropriety. And so they would be singing it. And then we would always joke and be like, you know, those songs are really great and clever. But if you get pregnant or an STD, do you think those people who are encouraging you to live like this are going to show up and pay your doctor bills? No, they're not altruistic. 
they don't really care about you, right? They're singing out of their own flesh and their own desires. They're not singing out of some type of position that's like, hey, there is an immortal God who deserves glory, and so I need to be responsible for the things I'm communicating to the world around me. And this is, this is the problem when we look at people and we put them on a pedestal and we go, that's the person, I'm going to vote for them and they're going to fix everything. That if, if in their lives they are not declaring the immortal glory of God, they're not going to be able to. And God's the only one that can bring that for us. He goes on in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And this is where the list just starts unfolding. He's like, you want fruit? Let me talk to you about fruit for a moment. Uh, uh, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Like, like when, they, when they make the exchange, they are actually, one of the fruit that you get is you can invent evil. You think that it's all been done. We go, oh, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, God says when it comes to evil, there is some stuff that can still be done. You can be pretty creative when it comes to doing evil. Disobedient to parents. Kids, listen to that right there. Right in the midst of all of this evil and strife and murder is not obeying your mom and dad. All right? We tell our kids all the time. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. List. He just keeps naming the sins. Right? These are the fruit that birth out of it. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, what is Paul saying? Paul is not saying that those who do it, that we just need you to go ahead and confess so that we can kill you, right? No, 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 no. He's talking about the person who, is, who, has, who has experienced the truth of God, right? You have you, you've been around some believers, you've heard the gospel, you know the truth, right? So you fully understand that the wages of sin is death, that without God and without his saving grace, there is a death that is coming that is not one that births you into the place of immortality with him that you hope to be in. And so what he says is he says that they know this, they know that the result of sin leads them here, it says that they not only do the sin, but what? They give approval to those who practice it. And instead of going, you know what, God, his immortal glory is deserving of my time, my attention, my affection. Honoring God is worthy of this thing. So right here today, I can't do anything about my past other than repent. I'm going to do it different moving forward. They don't even make that decision upon the revelation of God. Instead, what they do is they continue to do it. What does he say? He says this exchange, this exchange becomes the fundamental basis for where all of this sin that is happening around us is birthing and operating. Now, some of the sins that we talk about today Abortion, poverty, oppression, justice. These are sins that are also in lists inside of Scripture, right? These are the things that we will see people get completely indignant over. Am I right? I mean, in this, 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 this crosses all of the political divides. This crosses all the cultural divides because each of these can be something that somebody is more passionate about than the other. And so the expectation is that because this is the thing I'm most passionate about, you at all better be 
very passionate about this. And then the person over here says, well, this is the thing I'm most passionate about, so you had better be passionate about this. And I just love the fact that when Paul is labeling all this stuff and he's just getting all up in their business, he's not putting any priority over them. He just says they're all a result of a condition, an exchange that was made. And I think that if we can get a hold of this, first of all, we can have some revelation as to why these things are happening and continuing to happen because we live in a world filled with people who have made the exchange. And so the first thing that we need to do if we want to see any effort made towards bringing change in these areas is we need to make sure that the exchange has not happened right here, right now in our lives. This is what sets Christianity apart from so many other religions is that it is about a personal, intimate relationship with God. It is about individual choice, not the choice of your political party or your race or your hair color. None of those groupings are going to put you together in the end. You're going to stand before God, neither Jew nor Gentile, man nor woman, you are going to be an individual with him. So make sure that we are not making the exchange. And why do these sins exist? They exist, they are the fruit of the exchange. That God has been revealing himself throughout history and people have run from it, right? God reveals himself through Noah and says, the flood is coming, I'm building an ark, you need to repent. People said, no, I'd rather live exactly how I'm living than to have anything to do with your God. Time after time after time, God has revealed himself. He's made himself known. And, and this is the thing. Somebody, I was, I was in a, a, a meeting several months back, and somebody made the comment about, like, oh, I grew up in church where they were always talking about the end times and Jesus is returning. And it's like, you know, that message has been going for a while, and I just, I just I'm tired of hearing it. Right? It hasn't happened, so maybe it's not going to happen. And I, I just think perspective-wise, we just think that, oh, well, we've been hearing a message for 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, that God's not moving and God's not doing what he said. But I will remind you that in Scripture, God will take hundreds of years among the prophets saying the same thing over and over and over, trying to save not just one, but generations of people. And we can expect that at some point, regardless of your eschatology views, right, whether you believe in a tribulation, a non-tribulation, a thousand-year millennial reign, a, we're in the millennial, whatever it is, we, the thing that we can all get into in Revelation is that Jesus is coming back, right? That there is something beyond this. And maybe he's warning us. Maybe his patience is divine and not a sign of apathy and complacency. So as long as we exchange and or ally with those who exchange, the fruit will always bear sin. It will always bear sin. I know we don't want to hear this, but it is just the reality of the scripture. He goes in Romans 2 and he begins to talk about the law. And I'm going to summarize here as we wrap up. Uh, he begins to talk about the law and the fact that the law does not save, but it is written on the hearts of believers right? So Paul in Romans 7, he had said, if it were not for the law, I would not know that coveting was sin, right? So the law is written on us. That's our conscience. It's conviction. It's like, oh man, I know this thing's really not right, but what's the big deal, right? Okay. So he's laying out this argument in Romans 2 that the law has purpose. And he asked the question at the beginning of, of three that, you know, is this, is God's 
faithfulness merited by the faithfulness of any? So is the fact that God's faithful, is that somehow only merited because I'm faithful? The only reason that God is faithful is because a handful of us are faithful? He says, no, your faithfulness has nothing to do with God's faithfulness. That's the immutable character of God. He's faithful. It's the reason why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. It wasn't because exclusively because he didn't like Nineveh. It was because he didn't like Nineveh so much, he knew God would save him. He says, I knew that if you sent me here and I did what you told me to do, that you'd save this entire city because that's your nature and I didn't want you to do it, right? Because God is faithful. So no, it's not because of this faithfulness. In Romans 3 verse 5, he goes into this. He says, but if, you're, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? So we have to understand the root of sin, and then we have to understand our need to rectify it. We have to understand the exchange. We have to understand that God needs to be made glorious in all that we do. And then if that's not happening, we have to rectify that. We have to figure out in what areas of my life, if I see sin showing up, popping up in my life, I see these little things, and I'm trying to gloss over them and say it's not a big deal, the scripture says that they're a fruit of something. So how do I rectify that? How do I repair that area of my life? And he goes in and he says here in verse 9 of, of chapter 3, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Uh, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In the paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." So this is what he says. He says, I've laid out to you this exchange, and this is what I want you to understand. We're all in it. We're all fighting that exchange. None of us are righteous. There's sin abounds in all of us. But as long as we aren't aware of the exchange, as long as we ignore it and continue to suppress it, we will continue to see the fruit of sin in our life at, at rampant rates, right? Because we have the law, this allows us to identify, okay, this is a struggle in my life, right? So I'm struggling with this. This is sin before God. So where in my life is this exchange taking place? Where is God not receiving all the glory? Is it in my thought life? Is it at work? Is, is there a relationship where I really don't want to talk about God and it allows thoughts that shouldn't be there to kind of work their way in? So I'm suppressing the truth in that relationship. There's so many little areas where the exchange can take place. And sin as the fruit, right, becomes the way that we go. Something's off. So how is it off? Where is this exchange taking place that I'm not giving God glory? And then we need to address the exchange. John Piper, uh, talking about sin, said this. 
Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. And so the fruit of not treasuring God above everything is sin. There are so many ways that sin creeps into our life. There's so many sins that creep into our life, but the manner in which it does it is when we do not have God glorified first and foremost in that area. And so I go back to this statement I made at the beginning, the first century church struggling with this picture of works and grace, right? Do I do good and that's how I'm saved, right? Or do I acknowledge that I'm a sinful being and I fight sin in my life and I trust that by the grace of God, I'll be saved? And this is the battle that they're fighting. And I would say, I think I would make the argument that it's actually a battle that we continue to fight today, even though we wouldn't use the language of the law, right? We certainly use the language of doing good. When I was in Bible college, I used to go and do street ministry and we would go out on Friday nights out in front of the bars and we would share the gospel and, and we would meet people all the time who would say that, that uh, no, I don't go to church, no, I don't read my Bible, but I believe in God and I'm a good person, so it's going to be okay. I do good most of the time. And, and it's not that I want to argue with them and go, no, you don't do good most of the time, right? Because there, there are things that we might identify as good. The truth is, is that doing good isn't the manner by which we're saved, right? There's a salvation process that takes place. So can a person who has made the exchange even do good? This was the question I began to ask, right? So there is good in God's eyes and there's, there is good in man's eyes, right? So, so there's good as God would call good and then there's good that we would call good. So do those goods line up all the time, right? If I, if I go out and help somebody, does that make that immediately good in God's eyes? Well, I've done my good deed for the day. I've done my good action. God's got to be pleased. Well, this, this is actually pretty easily uh, 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 debunked. If we go to Hebrews chapter 11, here in verse 6, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Paul writes in Romans 14, at the end of the section, he says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so if it's not birthed out of a position of reverence for God and honor for God, I'm not telling you you shouldn't do it. I'm not saying that, that morally we wouldn't go, well, that's not a bad thing, but on a human level, it's good. But that does not make it good before God. God says that if faith isn't engaged in the process, you're not going to bring it in and go, God, look at all the good things that I did. He's going to say, no, that was sin. Why? Because the fruit of the things that we create once the exchange has been made is sin. And so God has to be glorified first and foremost in our life. He has to be honored in all that we do. So can a person who has made the exchange do good? I would say the answer is no. And I would say that in the end, sin is a destroyer. It's going to destroy everything in your life. 
And that as you see that fruit being made in your life, and we're all going to see it because we're all going to have areas where we're having to, because we love darkness, because we're drawn into these, these mysterious places, right? We all are going to have to make those decisions, the, the, the duration of our lives to bring God glorified first and foremost into every area of life. Paul, I'm just going to give a couple of these, and I really am about to close. Paul talks about sin uh, extensively. He says that, uh, uh, that sin enslaves. He says that sin uh, has dominion over some. He says that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, so the sin, it, it seizes opportunities in our lives, that it deceives, right? And through it killed me, he says. So sin has the ability to take our lives, uh, uh, that he was sold, that some are sold under sin, that sin dwells within us, right? So, so he gets into this. Like, first of all, he lays out where to, what's the root of sin, and then he begins to talk about all of these manifestations and where they show up and how dangerous sin is. So if, if it's just grace, if it's just all good, why does Paul spend so much time talking about the danger of sin? Because I think that part of the, 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 of the salvation process that we miss, right? And I just want to just... I'll just repent before you because I think this is critical and I don't know that I really fully understood this is that it is about believing in our heart, confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, right? That is a consistent part of our lives to not make that exchange, to not begin, you know, well, you know, I got saved last year. I made that prayer and I, I don't like my church anymore. I don't like this person or I don't have time for this. And we slowly allow that exchange to be made. And so Paul is addressing that, that that exchange creeping its way back in. And I'm not going to tell you that it's a heaven and hell issue because I, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't fully understand all of the ins and outs of judgment, but I can tell you this, that loving God, right, Loving God means that I'm going to pursue righteousness. I can tell you that's the fruit of loving God. And so if you're wrestling with where your heart is, look at the fruit of your life. And so that brings me to the question, did Jesus live a sinless life? I would say yes for two reasons. First of all, the Bible confirms it. But secondly, Jesus did not make the exchange. Jesus did not make the exchange in any area of his life. And now think about all of the moments in his life, all the interactions that he had and the glimpses we were given. The deceiver shows up to tempt him. What does he do? He talks about the honor and glory of God, that you will not tempt the Lord your God. He puts God first and foremost right there. He's dealing with uh, the demoniac, the demon-possessed individual. What is he doing? God receives the glory. He's navigating healing and people's lives being changed. Who's receiving the glory? God is receiving the glory. Think about the detail that is inside of those stories of Jesus's interaction with humanity and the spiritual world. We are given a glimpse every time of how he gives glory to the immortal God because he did not make the exchange. And because he did not make the exchange, there was no root inside of him to bear any fruit of sin. Two quick scriptures, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse, 20, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued uh, entrusting himself to him who judges, judges justly. So what do we see? Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He didn't make the exchange. He gave himself over to God and said, God, you're the, you're the you're, Father, you are the judge that judges justly. And so I'm going to give myself over to you. I'm declaring your goodness. The second one here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This word righteousness, I was looking it up because it's shown up several times, and I was like, oh, it means to be without sin. But actually, it kind of blew my mind. Uh, it comes from the Greek word dikaios, which means equity. And this is a word that we're seeing used more and more in, in society right now. Politics and culture, we're having the discussion around equity. It means to be justified or to be without sin. And the picture of this righteousness, this equity, right? It says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If equity is about bringing people up to the level where we are, right? Well, if the level that I'm in is the very depths of hell, then what equity am I inviting them into? So I have to be in the position where I am in the equity of God so that the people that I am bringing up to me, I am bringing them into eternal hope. And that's the righteousness of God. That's what it looks like when we bring glory to him in all that we do. And so you cannot make the exchange to receive the equity because the equity of God, that full goodness and glory and eternal position, right? It doesn't take place within those that make the exchange. And so I began with this question, does sin impact me? And I told you, I don't know that that's the right question. I think the right question is, what does sin tell me about me? And when sin is, when there's the fruit of sin in some area of my life, what is that? Paul says that now I'm able to identify it, right? The law is written on my heart. I know that coveting is sin. Now that I can identify it, how do I navigate getting rid of it? And I've got to go back to the root. And I've got to make sure that in everything in my life, I'm bringing glory and honor to the King of Kings. Let's stand to our feet. I want to pray with you and then we'll leave. Amen. Amen. If you would, just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment of reverence before the Lord. If you're watching online, I uh, want to encourage you right now to pause what you're doing and just, uh, uh, just get into a, a, a quiet place, a quiet moment, focusing on the Lord. I'm just reminded that Paul lays out this very heavy argument in Romans, but in, in chapter 3 he says that, that we're all sinners. So it's not like somebody's doing it better than me. And that, that gives me hope. And so right now, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and say, Father, we, we, we want to be children that don't deny the immortal glory of who you are. 
we want to be the type of people who are bringing honor to you in every area of our lives, that there's no compromises, that it's, it's, it's not a, 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 a less is more or, you know, uh, choosing the worst or the best among the worst, but instead that, that in our lives we are declaring your goodness and we are looking for your glory that we are unashamed because of the hope we have in you. Like Paul, Father, we are able to identify sin in our lives. Every one of us in this room could, could make a list of sins that populate into our lives. Thank you for writing that into our hearts that we would be able to see and identify and know what those things are. Father, I pray that today we would go a step further than just identifying them, but that we would seek to, to rectify them, that we would seek to bring healing to our hearts, that in the areas of our hearts where there's compromise, that we would work to see that exchange undone, that we would do the hard work, the thing that we don't want to do, to give up the things that we're enjoying so that you would receive glory in our lives. Father, I believe that this type of transformation, this type of change in our lives is the type of change that will bring transformation to the world around us, that it's the type of change that will, will be a magnet to people who want to know you, that our neighborhoods could come to know you, that our families could come to know you. Lord, be with us, speak to us, and speak through us. Let us be light in the darkness. Let us be your church in these times. We love you and praise you in your mighty name. Amen. Guys, I love you. If you need prayer, our prayer ministry team is in the back. Uh, I understand you may not be comfortable with that. That's perfectly fine. You can write out a prayer request. We will make it a matter of prayer uh, this coming week. We, we really do love you guys, and I, we are praying that God will be giving you opportunities to share the gospel this coming week. Uh, we will see you next Sunday. Until then, go change your world.